You're listening to the Seabreeze Church Podcast. Good morning, everyone. Good to see you today. We're in this um, message series called How to Bounce Back, and we're looking at uh, how Jesus particularly can help us bounce back in life. And that's really important because, of course, life is full of all kinds of declines and falls, downturns, uh, whether it's financial uh, setback or the death of someone that we love or personal struggle with addiction, the loss of a job, maybe the end of a relationship. Life just continues to deal uh, downturns to us. Most people learn how to survive this kind of thing because it's a part of life, and they actually learn how to kind of move on and recover from the downturns of life. But Jesus intends much more for us than just recovery and moving forward and survival. He wants us actually to bounce higher than we fell. In other words, he wants to bring good out of the really hard things in life. But in order for, do, for us to do that, we need to be really clear on his instructions about how to bounce back. Jesus gave us six words that all begin with the letters R-E that we've been looking at that are the key to bouncing back the way he wants us to. We began by looking at the first word, resurrection. This is where Jesus demonstrated his power to bounce back. As we've said, if you can bounce back from death, you can bounce back from anything. So Jesus is the master at bouncing back, and his power is available to us. The second word we looked at was repentance. This is the bottom. Repentance is the bottom of the bounce back V. We need to hit bottom before we bounce back. In other words, we need to come to the point where we are honest and come to admit the truth about ourselves to others and to God. Then we looked at rebirth. This is the new life that Jesus offers if we decide to follow him. The presence of the Holy Spirit inside of us, helping us grow and change and really, you know, granting us the power to move higher than we ever have before in life. And then last week, we looked at the word redeem. This is how it is that God takes the patterns of our past that are destructive and transforms them into patterns that bring life to us and the people around us. Today, that brings us to the fifth word, which is reconcile. The word reconcile means, the prefix re means to go back and to bring together. So to reconcile means to to go back in the past and bring together. What is it that needs to be brought together? Well, it's the relationships with those that we have wronged. The relationships need, need to be put back together. And that's because no one falls alone. Whenever we fall in life, we always pull others down with us. When life goes down, everyone attached to that person is affected by their decline. Everyone, to some degree or another, is pulled into the vortex of their downward spiral. And what that means is in the wake of every personal fall, there is the wreckage of relational damage. And so if we're going to bounce back in the way that Jesus wants us to bounce back, we're going to have to repair the damage that we have done. The truth is this. No one falls alone. They always bring someone with them, and no one can bounce back alone. Part of the way God helps us recover and improve is through the help of other people. And that's why we need to repair these relationships, not only because it's right, but we really need people. And if we keep breaking relationships, as we move on in life, we're not going to have the help that we really need. Growing up, we used to play in our family a board, called, a board game called Sorry. I don't know how many of you played this game. Every player is given a destination. It's a pretty simple game. And the routes to these destinations follow the same path. And so what that means is as you, you know, move along, you're going to eventually land on someone else. You're going to land on their spot. And when you do that, 
automatically sends that person back to the beginning, that, that piece back to the beginning. And when you do that, when you land on them and send them back, then you're supposed to say, sorry, and the game goes on. Now, we do much the same kind of thing in life. On the way to our goals, people are often in our way. And sometimes intentionally and sometimes unintentionally, we kind of run over people or, or push them aside or treat them in a way that's not right in order to get on with what we're trying to accomplish in life. And as we do this, sometimes we have the sense to say, well, sorry. Other times we just kind of move on. Now, sorry is fine in a game where the damage that's done isn't real. But in real life, where the damage is to real people, sorry just isn't enough. It doesn't cut it. Every wrong that we do to someone has a voice that's attached to it. Whenever we do wrong, it's as if we've activated a voice of justice that begins to project to us and to God. It's a voice that cries out to God for justice and a voice that keeps calling us to make it right. We first learn of this voice in one of the first sins that's recorded in the Bible. This is when Cain killed his brother Abel. In Genesis 4, verse 10, it says this, The Lord said, What have you done? Listen. Your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. What God is saying is, You may have silenced your brother's physical voice, and his blood has seeped into the ground where you killed him. And probably just days later, people could go back, and they wouldn't even see the side of the crime. And so it may look to you, God says, as if, Everything is silent now, but you have just activated a voice, the voice of justice. And it's as if the blood that is now seeped into the ground is crying out to me for justice. In the New Testament, we read of this voice again in James chapter 5, verse 4. It says, look, the wages you failed to pay the workmen who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. Now, there's two voices from this one incident. This is describing a scene where the owner of a field hired a crew to harvest the field. And they did that work, but then he refused to pay them the wage that he had promised them. Probably because he was powerful and they were not, and he could get away with it. And he thought their voices, the voices of that crew, would not have an impact on him who had more wealth than means. And God says, no, no, you just set off some voices. You set off a voice crying for justice. The, the wages that you fail to pay, it's as if the money itself is screaming for justice to me. And in addition to that, now you've got however many people in this crew, they're talking to me about you. They're crying to me and asking for justice because you have wronged them. So it turns out that when we do wrong, things can get pretty loud. But not only does it get loud in heaven, it gets loud inside of our own hearts. And that's because God has given each of us a conscience. That's where we hear this voice that is not an audible voice. The Apostle Paul, early church planner, is telling Timothy, who is a new Christian, about how to stay on track in life, how not to, to shipwreck your life and your faith. And this is what he says to him in 1 Timothy 1, 18 through 19. Timothy, my son, 
I give you this instruction in keeping with the prophecies once made about you, so that by following them, you may fight the good fight, holding on to faith and a good conscience. Some have rejected these, speaking of faith and a good conscience. They've rejected these, and so have shipwrecked their faith. So he's saying, Timothy, you really need to be sure as you're navigating life that you hold on to these two things. You want to hold on to faith. Again and again, you're just going to have to trust God to to be good to you and to provide for you and take care of you when things are terrible. You don't want to, if you start making decisions based on fear rather than faith, you're going to run your life into the rocks. So hold on to faith. And he says, a good conscience. Whenever we do wrong, we feel guilt in our conscience. That's if our conscience is working, if it's a good conscience. Now, if we ignore our conscience, our conscience is damaged. It's no longer good. We've lost then our compass. And just like a ship without its navigation, it's only a matter of time before we run our life into the rocks. This is why Paul says you want to hold on to a good conscience. Now, how do you do that? By making things right when you've done things that are wrong, by asking for forgiveness. You remove the voices of conviction by dealing with the wrong you've done rather than running from the wrong that you've done. Often, people just try to move on, kind of like sorry, the game sorry. Boom, sorry, and on you go to your goal. But the voices of the past keep connecting us to the wrong that we've done in the past. You can ignore those voices by silencing them in terms of putting distance between you and the people you've wronged. And over time, you can even ignore the voice of your conscience. A bad conscience is often referred to as searing your conscience. It's as if the, the nerve endings of your conscience are damaged. You, you no longer have the ability to hear the voice of justice crying for you to make it right. But the one voice that we can't ever silence is God's voice. We may not be able to hear it, but God has determined that we feel it. The only way to properly address the voices of our past is to admit the wrong that we have done, and to reconcile with the people that we have wronged. Now, it takes two to reconcile. If you're reconciling your bank account, you and the bank have to agree. If you think it's this amount and the bank thinks it's another amount, you're not reconciled. It's the same with the people we've wronged. We can attempt to reconcile, but it requires two to reconcile. You can Forgive, it only requires one to forgive, but it requires two to reconcile. So we find ourselves often struggling to reconcile. I used to use Quicken, personal finance software, to, to reconcile my accounts. And if you've ever used that software, I don't know if they still have this button, but there was a reconcile button. You can see a picture of it here. It was pretty easy. You click on the reconcile button, and immediately... What would pop up was a record of my transactions since the last time I'd reconciled with the bank. And if there were any differences between what I had recorded in the software and what the bank had said was true of my account, that difference would show up. If it said zero, which it almost always did, then I'd click the finish button and I was reconciled. It was done. You know, two seconds, three seconds maybe. Now, reconciling with people follows a similar path. But it's not as quick as Quicken. There's no button. You can just click and we're good, right? No, there's more work that needs to be done. 
And that's because the difference in the account of what's happened between the two of you is almost never zero in your understanding. There's always a difference. There's always a discrepancy in the records. We never agree about how much wrong we've done or how much wrong they've done. They think they've done this. We think they've done something different. They think the same of us. And so reconciling can be pretty challenging. And therefore, we have a practice throughout history, and I think primarily in our culture we've perfected this, of attempting to reconcile in ways that really don't reconcile. We are really good at bad apologies in our culture. So I wanted to show you a clip of a particular bad apology that I saw in a movie a few years ago. So let's take a look at this. Is there something you want to tell me? Well, I'm trying to think of how to say it, Juno. There is a purpose to this visit, and that's to apologize. But I'm not a naturally apologetic woman, so it takes me a little longer to get my thoughts in order. I want to seem properly contrite for having gotten you into this golf match, but not seem that what I did was ill-intentioned because it was not. What exactly are you apologizing for? For publicly humiliating you? Mm. Well, that'd be a good thing to apologize for. However, I think that basically what I'm trying to say is, is that I'm sorry, but it's not my fault. You're the one to blame. <laughs> You ever been apologized to that way? Have you ever offered that kind of apology? I have. Not those exact words, but that's the struggle we have when it comes to reconciling our relationships. Now, thankfully, Jesus, who is guiding this series of messages with these six words, he has given us some very practical steps, three steps, a reconciling checklist to help us reconcile rightly. Here's what he says in Matthew 5, 23 through 24. He says, Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. Step number one, whenever there's wrong between you and someone else, is to take the initiative. The initiative is always with you. You take the initiative. It says, first, go and be reconciled. Go and be reconciled. Now, our approach usually is different. We only think we have to take the initiative if we are the ones that are in the primary wrong. If we are the primary reason that there's a damage in this relationship, well, then okay, it's on us. The problem is we rarely think we are the ones primarily in the wrong. And so a lot of reconciling never gets off the ground because we're waiting for them. And they're waiting for us. We start from the position that the break in the relationship was our fault. We're not responsible. Or their fault. It wasn't our fault. They're responsible. They said this. They did that. They're thinking the exact same thing usually. 
If we hadn't said that or done that, then this wouldn't be a problem. So there's a stalemate that occurs right at the beginning. So Jesus gives us a first step that has absolutely nothing to do with whose primary fault it was. It has nothing to do with who did what and how bad it was. The, the initiation requires one thing, awareness. If there is a voice in your head reminding you of a relational problem, if you remember, Jesus says, then you need to take the initiative. Not if you were in the wrong, if they were in the wrong. No, if you remember that there's something that someone has against you or something that you have against them, the ball's in your court. You need to take the initiative. Now, the scene he's describing is someone standing in line at the temple to bring their tithe to God. And they're standing there, and they're, they, they remember. Maybe it was an incident on the way to the temple. Maybe it was something that happened a week ago. They are remembering something that occurred between them and another person, a brother or sister. And they remember that it didn't end good. It ended badly. And you're pretty sure that they're holding on to something against you because you're holding on to something against them. But what tends to happen, just imagine this yourself. I've imagined it. I'm standing there, and I'm, I'm thinking, oh, yeah, there's, we're si I'm sideways with this person. But then almost immediately what comes rushing to your mind is what they did that was wrong. And then the reasons why your response was justified. And they're to blame, as this clip says. So you smugly move forward in line because it's not on you. But the words of Jesus say nothing about who is to blame for the break in the relationship. He said, if it comes to mind, the move is yours. It's up to you to go and try to fix this break. Now, let me give a little more context to this standing in line, because this standing in line at the temple was not just some random backdrop to the instruction that Jesus gives on reconciling relationships. Tithing back then wasn't a weekly or a monthly event like it often is now. That's because back then they didn't have the elaborate banking systems that we have now. People didn't get paychecks deposited into their accounts. There weren't apps that you could give through and set up automatic giving. I mean, none of that stuff was available. In fact, most of the people of that day were farmers or shepherds. And most of them lived a long ways away from the temple because transportation was not what it is today either. So once a year, after harvest time, usually, they would sell 10% of the crops that they had harvested. That's the tithe, 10% of the income. Well, they would take 10% of their livestock. And then they would take between a one and seven day journey to bring their tithe to the temple. And this happened around the same time of the year because of harvest time. And so the lines were always long at that time of the year. And the excitement was great because there were a lot of activities and festival kinds of things that were going on around this period of time as well as giving the tithe. So this for the Jewish people of this day, was the high point of the year. They had making the, they'd made the annual trek to Jerusalem with their tithe, and they were standing in line. This is the scene that Jesus chose to make this point. It's fascinating. What he's saying is this. What do you think is the most important activity? You ask anyone standing in line, what's the most important activity? And they would 
say, well, of course, the, the time here at the temple. This is why I've traveled eight days or seven days or four days. This is the most important activity, offering my gift at the altar. And Jesus would say, you're right, that's very important. But do you know what's even more important? Reconciling that broken relationship with someone you got in an argument on that trip here. That's actually more important to me than this gift. And so Jesus says the amazing thing, leave your gift there. My first thought was 10% of my annual income, I'm just setting it down? Is that important? Can I find someone to guard it for me? The scene that Jesus is describing is this is the most important thing. You remember that someone has something against you, and that now, whatever your list of important things is, that now is number one. That's now made it to the top. Go reconcile now. Why is this so urgent? Because if you ignore the break in a relationship, does it get better or worse? It gets worse. And does a heart, the heart of someone who's upset with you, does it get softer over time or harder? It gets harder. That's why time is of the essence. What Jesus is saying is other things on your list can wait. You can come back, offer your gift, but this needs to be done now. You can't wait on this. Now, for me, this first step, this take the initiative step, I'll just be honest, this is the hardest of the three steps for me. I don't like conflict, and I like talking about it even less. I just kind of want it to go away, or most often prefer to think that it's just not really there. I'm just imagining things. And so whenever I have this sense that I'm going to have to go talk with someone about a problem, I get a pit in my stomach. The easiest thing to do for all of us is just to ignore it, cut, and run. And that's honestly what most people do. But if you make a habit of just moving on, what will happen over time is the wake of your life will be littered with people that you used to know, friends you used to have, relationships that you used to value. And then you'll have to keep starting all over again with new friends and new relationships. People who don't know you as well as the people in the past knew you. And therefore, people who really can't help you as much. These relationships that we have are precious. And we need to do everything we can to salvage them. Now, as I said, it takes two. But the initiative always falls on you. If you're aware of it, take the initiative. Step number two is talk to their face. Talk to their face. As it says, go to your brother or sister. Another big mistake that we make in conflict is, the first one is, we wait for them to come to us, and time just makes it worse. Second big mistake is, we talk about the problem with them to somebody else. We talk about the person that we're upset with, rather than going and talking to them face to face. This is our natural tendency, and it does damage. The reason we do this is because when we talk about someone to someone else rather than to them, whenever we talk about someone, we retain the full editing rights of the story of what happened. We can tell the story any way we want because we're telling it to someone who wasn't there. They can't correct us. They can't say, that's not what they said. Don't you remember you said that? That's not what they did. They weren't there. 
So we have full editing rights. Behind the back, we can edit facts, the facts of what happened to make ourselves look better and them look worse. And this is almost always what we do. In fact, we can edit so strongly that it gets to the point where we can't even remember the facts ourselves. We begin to believe our editing job. Now, if you have young children at home, you're well aware of this tactic. Your one child will come running in, crying and screaming about what one sibling did. They'll tell their story. You go talk to the other sibling, and it's as if they weren't in the same place. The stories, I mean, the bite on the arm is the one constant truth, but how that happened, no one seems like they'll ever be able to know because the versions are so different, you can't get to the truth. Stories don't match. This is, this is editing. That's the power of editing. The, and editing is necessary because you can't say everything. If you're going to tell someone about any event, you can't tell them everything. You have to edit. You have to summarize. And so an editor has to decide what to leave in and what to leave out. But we have to realize that decision has tremendous power. It actually has the power to completely change the story and leave the wrong impression. This is what tends to happen when we talk behind the back about someone rather than to their face. Back in 2008, some of you who are with us will remember this, our, our bank, who we had the mortgage on the property from, was asked by the New York Times to recommend some churches that they could talk to about how churches were dealing with uh, the downturn of the economy. This was the, the great mortgage crisis, and everyone was struggling in various ways. We had just moved onto this site the year before, and then the economy had tanked. The giving went down about 30%, and we were struggling to survive financially. Now, our bank was grateful for how we had handled those challenges. We had gone to them early uh, to address some of the challenges, and they were grateful. And so they recommended us to the New York Times. So I took it as a compliment. The New York Times wants to do a story on us? Now I know that it's never a good thing if the New York Times wants to do a story on you, <laughs> especially if you're a pastor. If you're a pastor and they want to do a story on you, it's not a good thing. Something bad. Something bad's going on. I didn't know that. My first clue was when they sent a photographer to this room to take a picture of me. So I sat there. I'm going to show you a picture in a little bit. But I sat there, and I smiled like you do for pictures. And he said, oh, no, 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 don't smile. <laughs> so why not? He goes, this is not that kind of story. I said, really? He said, just, he said, you want me to scowl or frown? He goes, no, they're just... Just close your mouth and stare at the camera. So I naively obeyed the New York Times photographer. And here's the picture that uh, ran in the paper. Here's me looking, I don't know, like I have indigestion. Or I don't know what it is. <laughs> so that was my first clue. But when the article came out, I was stunned. Here's the title of the article foreclosures don't spare the house of God. What? How is that the story? They made it sound like we were in foreclosure. Now, if you read the whole article, which some do, it's clear we weren't in foreclosure. We were under strain, but we weren't in foreclosure. Some other churches in the story weren't, but my picture was the one that got on the page, and the implication under the headline was we were in foreclosure. 
I was furious. I remember thinking, ah, editors. Can't stand editors. So I learned a lesson back then. Now every time a reporter asks to interview me, which honestly doesn't hardly ever happen. It's happened a few times. Um, nobody, I'm not famous. But the few times I've been asked by a reporter to interview me for a story they're doing, now here's what I say now. I say, why don't you tell me the story that you're writing? And then I'll tell you if what I have to say fits with what you want to say. Because I know you got a story. You've already got it written. You're just needing to plug in a few pictures and a few people. And I don't know if my story fits with what you're saying. So tell me what you've already decided to say first. That's just the way it goes. And it's only gotten worse since back then. The fact is, I've learned, is editors have an agenda. But before we get all mad at editors and newspapers and news outlets, let's be honest. We all have an agenda, don't we? We all have an agenda. And when it comes to us, our agenda can be summarized this way. We want ourselves to look as good as possible, and if necessary, at the expense of other people. So if we get in a conflict, we are going to see that conflict, and we're going to talk about that conflict in a way that makes us look rather innocent and them look rather awful. That's our agenda. That's just the natural human heart's agenda when it comes to the wrong that we've done, is we defend and we blame. We don't admit and we don't own. That's not our first impulse. This is why it's so important to talk face-to-face -face with the people that we're in conflict with. When you talk face-to-face, -face, the agendas have to take a back seat. Why? Because they were there. They were there when this event occurred, when this wrong was done, when these things were said. And if you choose to leave out a horrible thing you said, they will remind you. If you try to make them seem like the bad people when you really did some things wrong yourself, they will remind you and say, no, 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 don't you remember? That's when you then said this to me. So you have to deal with the facts face to face. Behind the back, you can edit the story. And you can change it to the point where you can't even remember what you did. So talking behind the back only makes the conflict worse. What happens when we talk behind the back? Now there's someone else that is upset with the person we're upset with. And we go talk to this other person who wasn't there and say something like, I, you know, can you believe this person said this to me? They did this to me. I'm just really struggling. I'm really upset. Well, what's that person going to say? They can't say, well, no, they didn't. Or I heard you said this to them because they don't know. They weren't there. All they can do if they want to remain friends with you is say, wow, that sounds awful. They sound like horrible people. So now they can't go reconcile with that person because they, they're not even supposed to know about this. And it just multiplies. They keep telling someone else. This is why one of the things that I, I do now, if someone comes to me and they're upset about somebody else, they start telling me about the hurt and the wrong. Early, early on, before I let them get too far, I stop and say, let me just ask you a question. Have you talked to them about this? And if they say, well, no, then I say, you know what? That needs to happen before we can talk. You need to go talk to them. 
It needs to be face-to-face. That brings us to step number three. Okay, you've taken the initiative. You're talking face-to-face, not behind the back, to someone else. Step number three, stick to your sin. Oh, this is so hard. Jesus continues in Matthew chapter 5 to make this important point. So these are verses that goes on from the ones that I've read. He says, settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still with him on the way, or he may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. I tell you the truth, you'll not get out until you've paid the last penny. What's he saying? Well, so our tendency is to focus on the wrong that other people have done to us. They do the same thing to us. So the conflict goes on and on with each side trying to make their point. And the problem is, is that until you admit the wrong that you've done, that wrong will be their mission against you. And it'll become a mission. They won't rest until every, every penny's worth of wrong that you have done is made right. That's the power of justice in the human heart. So Jesus says, settle matters quickly. Set aside the wrong that they've done to you and confess your sin. Until you do that, their primary mission will be to exact justice from you. And as long as they're on a mission against you, they're going to be blinded to any wrong that they did. So what Jesus is saying here is take away their mission. They're going to court. Pay off the debt. Take care of the wrong. If you did wrong, admit it. Make it right. I've seen this happen over and over again in my marriage. You know, Rebecca and I are arguing about something, and I'm making the point of how wrong she is, and she's making the point about how wrong I am. And this can go on, as you know, for a long time. And then what often happens is one of us, and I'll be honest, often it's her, she will ask me to forgive her for something that she did that was wrong in this exchange. And at that moment, I have a, a conflict in my heart. First of all, my thought is, well, okay. Now you're coming to your senses. <laughs> the second thought is, but I wasn't done prosecuting my case. <laughs> but when I say I forgive you, then guess whose wrong is left exposed? Moi. Now, I couldn't even think about my wrong that I did to her before because I was so busy trying to get her to see the wrong she did to me. But she's just taken it out. Now, you may be thinking, but I only did a penny's worth of wrong, and they did a million dollars worth of damage to me. Well, let's just say that's true. Jesus made it clear that when people get on a mission of justice, they'll go to court over one penny just over the principle. And so people can hide their sin behind even a penny's worth of wrong that's done to them. They can hide a million dollars worth of wrong behind a penny of wrong you've done to them. So it makes no sense to let them use a penny to hide behind. So humble yourself, get rid of the penny, and leave it in their court. Now don't make this a deal. Don't say, okay, I've done my part. Your turn now. Just stick to your sin. Just, just leave it. Don't linger. Don't ask. So what do you, th- any thoughts about what you did wrong? Just leave it. <laughs> just leave it. So will these three steps repair every relationship? No. Sadly, it won't. 
As I said, it takes only one to forgive, but it does take both to reconcile. You can't make someone reconcile with you, but you can take the initiative, you can talk to them face to face, and you can admit your own sin, get your wrong out of the way. If there's no peace after that, well, then at least you can sleep knowing that you've done everything you can to live at peace. One of the most helpful verses to me is this, Romans 12, 18. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. What this is saying is it's not possible to live at peace with everyone. But you want to make sure that the reason that there is no peace is not yours. You've done everything you can. And Jesus gave us three steps. So do these three steps. If there's still no peace, there's still no reconciling, that's sad. Forgive them and move on. So what's your next move? Pick one of these three. Initiate. In person is best. Don't email an apology. Email cannot hand the weight of relational challenge. Call them. Set up a time. Get together with them. And then talk face to face. Stop talking about them. If, if you're talking about them to somebody else, that means this is something you need to initiate to them. Stop talking about them. Go talk to them. Or maybe you need to admit your sin. You just need to stop and say, you know what? You're right. This thing, and you may be thinking it's only a penny. This thing that, that I did or that I said was wrong. Would you forgive me? And then just see what God does with that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the clear instruction that your word provides in Jesus for your clarity on this matter, the importance of it, the steps to it. It's so different than the way we approach the wrong that's, that's done to us and the wrong that we do. But over and over again, you want us to repair the relationships. So I pray for everyone in this room that you make it really clear what the next step is for them and who that next step is to be with. God, I pray that in the wake of our lives would be long-term relationships with people who know us well and who we know well that you can use to really help and grow us. Help us to repair what has been damaged. And if the repair cannot be done, God, help us to forgive and not hold it in bitterness. We pray this now in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Seabreeze Church Podcast. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, seabreezechurch.com. Thanks again for listening in, and we hope you'll join us next week for the Seabreeze Church Podcast.